This is Tamsin Granger. This is Dan Abuhoff. With Tamsin and Dan Read the Paper on Sunday, May 15th, 2022. Full moon tonight. It's uh, the flower moon. It's one of those blood moons. There's a lunar eclipse. It's a big night. Okay. Um, maybe the full moon is tomorrow. I don't know. But um, there's a lot of moon stuff going on. Although, theoretically, it's going to get cloudy around here, so we won't see the lunar eclipse. Mm. Or something. I don't know. Okay, well, all right. Yeah, yeah, this is all news to me, but fine. Good. All I know is it's a nice afternoon. It's sunny out there. It's 80 degrees. It's been a long okay. time coming. Uh, yeah, and actually things look extremely lush around here. Yeah. We went from freezing cold and pouring rain to it's a jungle. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Saw that on the bike ride. Yeah, it's very nice. All right, so um, so there are a bunch of uh, paintings that went up for auction. Things are kind of going crazy. I don't know if that's the economy or what it is. Uh, the article that caught my eye was one about the sale of a painting called The Sugar Shack for $15.3 million, painted by a person named Ernie Barnes. Apparently, uh, this painting was featured on the cover of Marvin Gaye's album, I Want You, and during the closing credits of the TV sitcom Good Times. Uh, it was sold for 76 times as much as its high estimate of $200,000. Wow. And, so how did that happen? Um, well, there's in some ways there's no explaining that. Um, but let me tell you what we know. Uh, the painting was purchased by a fellow named Bill Perkins, a so-called energy trader. And he said, quote, I stole it. I would have paid a lot more. Quote, for certain segments of America, it's more famous than the Mona Lisa. Okay. Uh, he was prepared to pay a ton for this painting. Uh, you're familiar with that. You've seen yeah. this? Okay. Um, and Painted who, in, uh, says there, 1976? Uh, I don't know. Yeah, if you say that's so. what it says. Yeah. yeah. Um, Just trying to put it in context. Yeah, look, I don't have any sense of the artistic value of anything. You have a better sense than I do, and, and you know, who knows? Uh, um, it's uh, it caught the fancy of, of several people, apparently. Notwithstanding, this fellow said, uh, the, the winning bidder said that he stole it. Uh, the truth is, he they couldn't have stole it because... The painting drew a total of 22 bidders. In other words, it was competitive bidding. No one's stealing anything. He had to fight for it. He did. And the bidding came down to Perkins versus someone else in the room, an art advisor who was re representing someone who went uh, unnamed. But in any event, this fellow's last name, name was Ger Johns. That's a name. And uh, at one point, Ger Johns turns to Perkins during the bidding and says, I'm not going to stop. I don't know if people did this in, in bidding. And Perkins replied, then I'm going to make you pay. So they're talking to each other during the bidding. They're trash talking. Trash talking. Well, they're trash talking, but I think one guy's trying to tell the other guy, uh, forget it. You know, you're just uh, knocking yourself out and making my life difficult. Want to just calm down. He's trying to intimidate. He's trying to intimidate him. Says, so just let it go. So, so he might get it for a lower price. And Perkins doesn't back down. And they get into this crazy spiraling bidding. And that's how you get... Fifteen point three uh, million dollars instead of two thousand. Instead 200, of two hundred thousand. Two hundred thousand. Yes. Right. Um, Perkins said he was educated about art in part by Rick Lowe, the Houston-based artist and community organizer. 
uh, whose project row houses uh, have become a leading example of social practice art. I don't know what that is. Uh, but this was an interesting quote. Lowe talked about how, quote, the role of the collector is to send a signal of what is important to museums in the world, Perkins said. I took this to heart. Okay, I'm now the defender of certain things. This is my role to be a steward of certain pieces of art and also have fun doing it. So I, I guess his attitude is that, uh, for, first and foremost, he likes the painting. Uh, secondly, not uh, insignificant, he has the money. Uh, but number three, he thinks, uh, and I'm not saying he's wrong, that he's uh, doing something, in this case, advancing the cause uh, of social justice. I should say it's, it's, it's a black painter, and it's a, a painting depicting a black uh, a celebration by a bunch of black folks dancing or something like that. And he feels he's making a statement about black artists, as he explains later on in the article, saying that basically by paying this much for a painting, it raises the, the value or potential value of other black artists. And maybe that's true. Is that well, true? Well, I, I, you know, uh, I hope so. In some ways, first of all, it's a terrific painting. It's a fun painting. Mm-hmm. The painting in 1976 mm-hmm. uh, means that, you know, um, it's pretty sort of realistic compared to a lot of other art mm-hmm. uh, of the time. Right. Uh, so, uh, but it is interesting that he is using his money mm-hmm. to, you know, influence, to try to influence other collectors, influence museums, etc. cetera. Um, it, it's, uh, I think this kind of um, uh, sort of attitude is linked to, in some ways with something we're going to talk about a little bit later, the popularity of a certain play, a musical, mm-hmm. um, in the, what was it, 1920s? 20s. Um, this sort of, you know, um, the vote of the people. Yeah, popular uh, story. Right. Yeah. Um, so uh, that's not to say it doesn't have intrinsic value, <clears throat> artistic, aesthetic value otherwise. Yeah. But uh, it's interesting what uh, popular opinion can do to art. And he, and he mentions the Mona Lisa. And the Mona Lisa is, uh, you know, sometimes we, we've talked about that. Is it a, a really unbelievable painting? Or is it just an unbelievably famous painting? Uh, because of it had, you know, it being stolen. And well, you're going to so, talk about Andy Warhol. It takes you right to that. I mean, I think that's that's the same idea. Well, yeah. Well, it just it just value becomes a very complex uh, yeah. idea. And so, also uh, last week, a um, painting by a work by Andy Warhol sold and uh, shattering the record for an American artist that was set by Basquiat's uh, skull yeah. um, for like 110 million. This. Uh, um, 1964, uh, shot sage blue Marilyn silkscreen, uh, by Andy Warhol sold for uh, what will effectively be over 200 million dollars. Uh, um, so this is a print, a silkscreen print. But it's a, it's the and, it's the uh, iconic uh, image of Marilyn Monroe. Yeah, but what makes it interesting though, uh, and I'm. Pretty familiar with this painting. Um, there was one hanging in the Princeton Museum, Princeton University Museum, mm-hmm. uh, and I'm not sure if it's owned by Princeton or I can't remember if it's owned by Princeton or if it was on loan. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
uh, from somebody else. Uh, so you know, I've seen it. Uh, I've seen that version up close and personal many times. It was also in the beginning, in the introduction of uh, the textbook we used uh, in one of my courses as an example, as it you know, to um, raise some issues about artists and authenticity and individuality and the changes in the medium because again it's a print and it's um, based on a um, promotional photograph for uh, a um, film Niagara and uh, you know at the beginning the the first series he did in 62 and there's a nice article in the times about this uh, was rather different from the one that sold this week. The mm. one that sold this week was a redo, a 1964 version of those originals, which were kind of sloppy and gritty and mm. kind of, uh, you know, uh, expressing, uh, you, know, uh, you know, a sort of uh, more of a negativity about um, the, uh, you know, consumer culture and the trap of consumer culture that Marilyn was perhaps trapped in as well. Um, but uh, as the um, article says in the Times, as mere repetitions of the 1962 works, the retreads, uh, such as this sage blue, shot sage blue Marilyn, invoked the replica- that the replication that powers consumer culture. Um, so that's interesting. Also, if you're curious about the idea that it's called Shot Sage Blue Marilyn, it's, uh, that is in reference to a woman coming into a studio and shooting yeah. some of the but, paintings. But wait a second. Isn't a, lot of this, uh, isn't a lot of the value, notoriety, and fame, and again, price, associated some part with the idea that it's Marilyn Monroe? Doesn't that uh, drive this to some degree? I mean, if this was something else, somebody else, I mean, doesn't it, doesn't it, uh, wouldn't it have diminished cachet? I, I think that's a point because then we have the, you know, we have his soup cans. Yeah. Which uh, haven't brought 200 million Yeah, dollars. I mean, okay. It, that's part of it. And the notoriety of Marilyn, her suicide, right. the idea that you look at this, she's kind of, she's painted up. Yeah. Uh, it's kind of a tragic, it kind of poses her as a tragic figure. Uh, yeah, I mean, all I'm saying is hard. True. All these elements. Look, they had the uh, the Met Gala recently, a, a week or so ago, and Kim Kardashian shows up in a Marilyn Monroe dress. And what I mean by Marilyn Monroe dress, the actual dress that Marilyn Monroe wore. Yeah, she looked and darn it, good in it. Well, I wonder uh, if she had it altered at all. I suspect she did. She probably brought this one of the tailors I use in the city. They're very uh, good. I, I saw some clip somewhere that she said, uh, you know. Uh, she she didn't wear it for the whole night. Well, they had because, uh, yeah, it would tear. Yeah. Apparently, they said Monroe was sewed into the dress for the uh, event that she wore at, which was Kennedy's birthday party celebration, I think, at Madison Square mm-hmm. Garden. But in this case, they had a replica of the dress made. So when you say, they say she changed into something, she changed it to a replica of the dress. So some oh, people okay. wouldn't have known. But in any event, it, it's so. All I'm saying is everything's kind of mashed up together in terms of what makes something yeah. famous, notorious, yeah. iconic. And valuable. Yes, and and as I said, there are, there are differences. You know, there's demand 
There's aesthetics. Right. There's technique. Right. And, and the, there are, there are and all the sugar shack. It's, you know, it's Marvin Gaye. So, I mean, you, don't, so you, you don't have to get uh, too confused. But let me just mention another thing that, that yeah. went up for auction this week that uh, caused a sensation uh, was a dinosaur a skeleton called Hector. Mm-hmm. I can't even say this. A skeleton of a Dionicus enteropus. Right. So there's. it's important that you can't pronounce it because... In Jurassic Park, they had the dinosaur uh, that the skeleton probably uh, was for. The actual, they tried to flesh it out, if you will, literally mm-hmm. and figuratively, and they gave it a different name because they couldn't pronounce that name. Oh, they had to give it a different name. Yeah, so what's it, the Velsipiter or something like that? It's in the article. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Uh, I'm not that big a Jurassic Park person, but it was, it was a small... Uh, menacing uh, creatures. They yeah. look like miniature Tyrannosaurus rexes flitting around. So anyway, this sold for uh, $12 million. Right. Okay, and it just, it just has a kind of a nice story. Uh, Jack and Roberta Owens, self-taught paleontologist, digs it up on somebody's land. Mm-hmm. They, you know, they had to deal with the, the owner of the land. Uh, they get paid for it by, you know, a, a so-called... Uh, a commercial paleontologist who uh, fixes it up, sells it uh, for something, and now it's uh, going uh, for even bigger bucks. But, you know, this particular dinosaur was key for, you know, th- that changing our mind from the lizard dinosaur to the bird, yeah. you know, feathery, a whole different vision of dinosaur. But uh, what also makes it kind of uh, interesting conversation is uh, who buys it. Yeah. So this is an undisclosed private buyer. And some people are upset about that, saying that objects like this that are so important to, you know, education and knowledge and research uh, should be in public institutions like museums. Right. Uh, So, um, you know... That's well, what's going on in the... Um, well, listen, the fellow buying the Sugar Shack painting said he's putting it in a museum. So, there you go. I thought he said it for at least a little while. A while. Then he's going to bring it back home. Yeah. 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 So, no, it's a, it's a fun painting. Yeah. And if, if you have the money, why not? Yeah. Why not? 15.3 but I, I million. Do, I do think it's, uh, you know, I think it's interesting, the idea of raising, of using your money to kind of... Uh, Raising the awareness mm-hmm. of uh, other artists, mm-hmm. different artists. Well, another painting went by Barnes. Another Barnes painting went to, was sold by Christie's for many times its estimate in the wake of that, and that two point three million, yeah. not the same as the fifteen, but it certainly has an effect. Yeah. Okay. All right. So, uh, speaking of the things that are extremely expensive, uh, you had an article about Zabar's, right? Did I? Yes. Yeah, it's not really about Zabar. It's about a book that yeah. Lori Zabar wrote about the history of Zabar. Do you know Zabar's, the uh, sort of Delhi Empire right. of New York City? And uh, sadly, uh, Lori Zabar, the granddaughter of the people who started the original Zabar's, passed away. Oh. Um, and she was about our age. And she, uh, she was actually uh, an art historian, architectural historian. She, she did, uh, she worked at the Met, yeah. um, cataloging things, etc. In, in addition to a lot of other jobs. So I'm just wondering, you know, I was at the Met for a few minutes. I'm wondering if our paths ever crossed. Oh, interesting. And, uh, 
anyway, so, um, I mean, Zabar's, uh, they have a quote uh, in the article in the Wall Street Journal, when I die and go to heaven, I hope Zabar's up there as good, the Zabar's up there is as good as the one down here, says Neil Simon. Um, so it, certainly we went there many times. Yeah, but and for people who don't know, it was a big delicatessen. It still exists, I think. On the Upper West Side, yeah. West 70s. And yeah. uh, it was like a bazaar. It was, like it was you, a bazaar. You walk along the aisles and they'd have all kinds. They have a nice photograph here which illustrates that they have things hanging from the ceiling. They have things on the floor, you know, in pickle barrels. They have all kinds of meats and cheeses, uh, breads and whatever. And uh, dynamic is the way you might describe it. Yeah. But what we didn't know was uh, in the 50s it was hanging by a thread. Mm. When uh, the original Louis Zabar died, um, mm. it was losing money. Mm. And they brought in a guy named Murray Klein, mm. a Ukrainian immigrant and former uh, store manager, blessed with a vaudevillian's knack for bridging the theatric and the chaotic. And it's Klein who really creates the Zabars yeah. that we knew. I will tell you something, though. I think Murray Klein is the guy who had Murray's Sturgeon Shop in the... Uh... West 80. Well, that that must come after. Yeah, it came after. Yeah, okay. All right. So, um, so anyway, it was a fun place to go. The man who knew a lot somewhat, about smoked fish. You know, uh, they did, they um, worked their magic in part uh, with, you know, time-honored, uh, you know, uh, retail strategies. Like they, according to this, they sold the uh, smoked salmon at cost. Yeah. So that, you know, it's a lost, lost leader. leader kind of thing. Yeah, computer, and they had a big war going on with Macy's The Cellar. Do you remember The Cellar yeah. at Macy's? They used to have this kind of food in the basement of the of Macy's, Macy's at Harold Square. Yeah. And that that was a great place, too. Yeah. The chocolate, chocolate Linzer tort at The Cellar. Yeah. Unbelievably Is that delicious. Right? I don't oh, remember seeing okay. any. I don't oh, remember yeah. you bringing any home. No, I, I took, uh, I remember, not only did I buy it, but I... Bought it and took it to Block Island on our first trip. Really? Yeah, as a hostess gift right. for uh, the Beans. I didn't see it. It's great stuff. Wonderful mm. chocolatey, almondy. How to travel? Pa- pastry. Great, great. Okay. It's a very durable okay. uh, kind of thing. Anyway, so. Um, it's like a strudel, basically? Zabar's was a lot of fun. Yeah. We used to also go to EAT. Yeah. I don't know if you say EAT or EAT. No, it's EAT. Uh, over um, by the museum near the Metropolitan Museum. I would go there and buy a wonderful kind of a BLT sandwich on a brioche, but it was with um, prosciutto mm. instead of bacon. Yeah, that's a little bit. Uh, uh, it was really good, and it got me into trouble because because I didn't know you weren't allowed to eat on the subway. Oh. You're not. And so I would but I would buy does. it and then hop on the subway Someone said something to go back to Penn Station to take the train home. Yeah. And no, everybody stared at me and I didn't uh, I didn't no, get it. I don't I don't I think that was you know, yeah. No, it was it was clear. You know what they were saying? Because I was so uncomfortable. Uh, Tamsin, they were, they, you know what they were saying? They were I saying, asked you about it later, and, they, and you said to me... Yeah, you're not supposed to eat on the subway. You said no one eats on the subway. Well, people you know? drink on the subway. Everybody I, knows that. Let me give you a couple points. Fool, what are you, from Maryland? Yeah. Look, number one, why would you want to eat on the subway? Number one. Because I was starving. Doesn't, not a good enough reason. What are you going to buy at the Met? Doesn't make any difference. You don't want to eat on the subway. It's an unappetizing place to eat. And number two is, uh, they're looking at you because they're saying, is that prosciutto on that BLT? That doesn't make any sense to me. Should be bacon. So that's what was going on. Look, what I you remember what I ordered because I know what to order at EAT, and I would order the chopped liver 
on the um, raisin, raisin nut. nut loaf. Raisin nut loaf, I think is fair a fair description. And as bad as that combination sounds, a raisin nut loaf and chopped liver, it is the best sandwich you could have in your entire life. Yes. And only the cognizanti, namely me, would know who to order it. So uh, there you go. But we tried to look it up on their current menu. You can get it. It doesn't seem to exist. They have the bread. They have the chopped liver. It doesn't oh, right, take a lot right, right, to put right. those together. I will say their breakfast sandwich yeah. is 18 buccos. Okay. It's, uh, it's, does that have prosciutto? Is that yeah. it? And next door to the um, yeah. EAT cafe, there's a little EAT uh, toy store that was quite charming. Really? Yeah. I can't imagine. Fun. I, I did <laughs> a lot of stocking stuff for shopping there. there. But anyway, also, the, so that's a book you can read if you're interested, if you want to relive. The name of the book is? The life, it's called Zabar's <coughs> by Lori Zabar. Yeah, okay. So go and, to the next book. Let's, and let's get the next going book in. is called Satisfaction Guaranteed. Not really. By Michelin yeah. Maynard. Yeah. And it's about, uh, the um, subtitle is How Zierman's Built a Corner Deli into a Global Food Community. Yeah. So Zingerman. So we've uh, you've said you've ordered from Zingerman's. I'm vaguely aware of it. They had a rye bread we were interested in. It's like a mail order deli well, in the Midwest, right? They yeah. say well, the today the um, Z Co B umbrella includes a bakery, creamery, candy factory, farm, Korean restaurant, consulting company, and mail order catalog. All right. So we've been getting you know. Um, unsolicited, the mail order catalog for years. Well, we must have and ordered one something. year. I no, 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 no. They just they they bought my name. I'm okay. sure from some other. They heard about you from the people okay? on the subway that you and were eating. I yeah. did buy something from them. Right. I bought Rugala right. for your parents, and it was not year. not outstanding. Right. I happened to see the box when yeah. we were over at their house that it came in. Yeah. It was teensy, forty five dollars, really? and I think. The uh, individual Rugalux yeah. were like the size of a quarter. So it's like $15 per Rugalux. Yeah. yeah um, that's crazy. That's an awful situation. But, um, I, but I'm sure other people and like yet, that. The irony, Satisfaction Guaranteed is the name of the book. And not, you, not to Tamsin. Exactly, not to Tamsin. Well, look, Zabar's is, uh, you know, and Zabar's does mail order too. So forget Zingerman's. You can't be doing that. But All I right. do miss I do miss a good New York deli. Tamsin, we're going to be in New York. I'm taking the New York. The of it. I just miss the, the great food of it. We will be in a New York deli in just a couple of weeks, okay? We've been trying to go to delis around here, but they're not the same. Well, uh, Moishe's in its season is not so bad. It's just not clean. That's the only yeah, thing. You don't want to say that in public. Okay. That's not Moishe's nice. in its is very I clean. I was not going to use their name. Okay. No one here is running to Moishe's in its season or running to avoid it. So here's an article that you want to talk about. It's about Tom House, a pitching coach. Huh? Hmm? Yeah. You're intrigued. All right. You're thinking this is not interesting. I tell you, he wrote 22 books on pitching. You say, oh so my what? God. But you're still saying, so what? What do I care about that? Right. And that he caught uh, when Hank Aaron's home run, when he hit his record-breaking home run, he was in the bullpen on the team. He knew just where to stand because he figured out where Hank Aaron would hit. He's a smart guy. That doesn't impress you. No. Here's what's going to impress you. It's that... Not only do pitchers pay attention to him, but quarterbacks in the NFL pay attention to him. Okay? How do you like that? Because he just understands throwing Exactly. Mechanics. A parade of quarterbacks, including Tom Brady and Drew Brees, have come to him for mechanical instruction. Okay? At one point, you know that Manning broadcast with Eli and Peyton on a Monday Night Football just a few months ago? They're watching Dak Prescott warm up before the game, the Dallas Cowboy quarterback, 
and Arch and, and Eli Manning yells out, "That's the Tom House warm-up. It's standard uh, thing lexicon in football. The man spans baseball and football. That's the kind of throwing expert he is. But here's here's a couple of interesting things about him. Okay, number one, just to burnish his uh, credentials in terms of baseball, and these are the, the best uh, examples of how amazing this guy is. It's, Nolan Ryan. It's not that interesting, but we don't have to burn his credentials. I'm, I'm burnishing them. Okay. Oh, okay, got it. Nolan Ryan came to him when he was 42 years old. In other words, this guy was coaching Texas. Right, Nolan, Nolan Ryan goes to the Texas Rangers at 42, and in the age of 42, 43, and 44, Nolan Ryan had the best three years of his career because this guy changed his mechanics, made some modifications. I could give you statistics. I know you're not interested, but it's just an unbelievable thought that he did this at the age of 42 to 44. He was leading the league in strikeouts because Tom House changed the way he pitched. I'll give you one other example. Randy Johnson, you've heard of him too. Yeah. The big hurt. The big something. And uh, he he's sitting there watching Randy Johnson pitch in a game. And he's sitting next to Nolan Ryan. And Randy Johnson is on another team. Okay? And they're watching him. And they feel so bad because Johnson is struggling. He can't throw strikes. He's not pitching well. He's, he's pitching for Seattle at the time. Uh, and Ryan and he agree that they should try to help Randy Johnson. So they take him aside and they go through his mechanics with him. And Tom House says, well, it's really a simple thing. When you, fo- when you step forward on your or pitches, you're going on the ball of your feet, foot. You should go flat-footed. Just land flat-footed will change any, everything. He does. It does change everything. He turns his career around. He has a tremendous end of the year. And he credits it in part, to that meeting with Tom House, who's helping him, even though he's not, even though he's on another team. And Tom House says, you know, I'm a teacher, first and foremost. And this is the quote from Johnson, that help that Tom House gave me, this is Randy Johnson, why didn't I get it in high school, or in college, or in four years of the minor league? Why couldn't someone else have seen it? And the article says, because Tom House is Tom House. But the other thing that Tom House does that will interest you in particular, is he's come up, he's very interested in helping children. Uh, young people, in terms of their mechanics, all right? And he, he says there, he makes two exam, two observations. He says, uh, number one, um, kids uh, don't get the proper instruction, their mechanics are off. And therefore, uh, the overwhelming majority, he says 70% of young people stop doing organized sports at the age of 13 because they're not progressing, because they have problems, because they have medical issues, whatever it is. It doesn't work out because they're not getting the proper instruction. But one of the points that he makes in this connection is it is much, much harder to do sports if you're tall as a child than if you're not tall. Here's what he says. By House's calculations, every inch of growth or five pounds gained pushes a growing teenager backward neurophysiologically by two months. A six foot seven 18-year-old is going to be three years behind a six-foot-one 18-year-old. This goes back to Randy Johnson, who's six-foot-five, something like that. The mechanics of a taller player are much more complicated, and they need much more instruction than a younger player, and even apply to children. And we saw that when we used to watch organized sports and watch Little League. The people would come out all the time and be kind of little kids, would be doing very well, saying, what a gutsy little kid. And I'd be saying, you know, no, no, no. They'd be have, rings about right. around everybody else. But the thing They're is... They're coordinated. They got it. When... But what? they're three years behind. Three years behind. 
So that means three years from now, the other kid can do it, or the that means that the, the, in high school, for example, a six a kid six foot seven is going to have trouble pitching effectively, whereas a kid six foot one might dominate. But three years later, by the time he's toward the end of college or even thinking of going to the pros, now the six seven person has caught up and is going to now exceed the six foot one person. So if you're really tall in high school, just don't bother with athletics? No. If you're really tall, you have to have patience and the proper instruction, and you will ultimately succeed. But it may be too frustrating. That's why he has invented a software called Mustard that he's making available for free that you can use to instruct your children. Maybe you want to send that to Hazi. Uh, Hazi could be big. Hazi's very promising, if you ask me. <laughs> Hazi looks very promising. I see him as a two-way player, not just pitcher. I see him as a guy who can drive the ball up the middle with a bat. All right, what else you got? Uh, oh, yeah. I just wanted to mention there was a no-hitter. And everybody got very excited that this fellow, Reed Detmers, uh, 22 years old, rookie, pitched a no-hitter for the Angels. But that's not got what got me going. Here's what got me going. The game was a blowout. Mm-hmm. So you get to the eighth inning, and it's 8 nothing, And so one team's killing the other. The Angels are killing the other team. So the other team, Tampa Bay, does what some teams do in that situation. They put a position player in the pitch. A guy named Brett Phillips, okay, who gives up a few runs. But he's, so she's pitching the eighth inning. Anthony Rendon comes up to bat. Anthony Rendon is a well-known baseball player, a star, mm-hmm. right? Uh, a right-handed hitter. And Anthony Rendon says, you know something? If they're going to put in an outfielder to pitch, I'm going to bat left-handed, all right, as opposed mm-hmm. to right-handed. And he hits a home run, left-handed. Okay. He's a right-handed hitter. All right. I mean, that's unbelievable. You know, the, the, the Met games uh, we're watching, they can't hit a run, the ball's dead, it doesn't travel, blah, 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 blah. Anthony Rondon is hitting it lefty out of the ballpark. So this guy yeah, must have had an interesting pitch. This guy got proper instruction when he was young. Uh, what can I say? That impressed me more than no hit. Really? Yeah. Okay. It really did. Because you're just a contrarian. I'm telling I'm you. I'm happy for the young The guy idea that a guy could come up and bat the opposite side in the major leagues and hit a ball out of the ballpark, the only time he ever batted left hand in his career, is unbelievable. Okay, all right, moving right along. Okay. Now what do you want to talk about? Uh, oh, we're going to talk the Ford F-150. You actually came up to me the other day and said, have you heard about this Ford F-150? And I'm saying, like, who is this woman? Have I heard about the Ford F-150? Since when do we talk about trucks? But you no, were all excited. It because it's, it, hasn't even, it hasn't even come out yet and it's sold out. Well, <laughs> sold that doesn't out. take much these days. But, the, yeah, so what the Rumble Seat guy, uh, Daniel, that's his column in the journal, Rumble Seat, says, you were about to read a rave review of the Ford F-150. My positivity may not be suitable for all audiences. And then he goes on. And he loves well, He it. is into electric. He's, he is into electric. He yeah. is into electric. He says, though, this car represents an American manufacturing triumph, a brand resurrection, a win for working people, a vehicle segment stepping out of the darkness into the light. I can't believe they got all those smart people to move to Michigan. <laughs> all right? And he goes crazy. And I won't, uh, you know... It, it, well, you were telling me that a truck is a logical... Because it's worth the investment. Because uh, you can charge a lot for a truck. So this truck, right, but also because it's heavy, you can carry a heavier battery. Right, can, right, and it's it, it has the scale to do it, so, and it has, it has a, because it's electric now, it can carry even more because it doesn't have the engine in the front taking all that room. So it has something called the mega power trunk, is what they call it. 
And as Neil says, I trust by now there's a bar band in Dearborn by that name. Uh, it's, uh, the, the cost ranges from 40000 to $91,000. They say it can essentially power your whole work site or, yeah. if need be, your house for three days. It can function as a generator. Well, well yes, let me, uh, let me just mention two things in that connection and I'll move on. First of all, I should mention, because everyone cares about this, the range is 300 miles, which is pretty darn good, right? Yeah. Two, charging, everyone worries about that. At a DC fast charging station, this car can pack up to 54 miles of range in 10 minutes. Wow. That's pretty good. And at home, you do the normal thing and it's eight hours. But to go back to your point, okay, the 131 kilowatt battery can keep the average house in the U.S. running three days at its usual rate and up to 10 days with some power rationing. Yeah. 10 days. All right. <laughs> All right. That's our next car, honey. I know you have We're getting no, on the waiting I, list. I can't see you driving a pickup truck. Yet. But I can Absolutely. see you driving a pickup well, truck. Well, that is true. Yeah. That is true. And I can see Hazi in a pickup truck. That's <laughs> the important see. thing. Um, so, yeah, I have kind of a sad animal story. Yeah, I, I don't know how you came up with this, but fine. Go ahead. It, it's from the New York Times, Trilobites, yeah. by Nicholas Bacalar. And... Uh, the uh, online title is The Trigger That Makes an Octopus Mom Self-Destruct. Yeah. And it's this very sad story. Uh, it's most octopus species live one year. Mm. Well, that I didn't know. Mm. Um, but the deaths of octopus mothers after they reproduce has long been a scientific spectacle. Uh, so... Um, there was recently a study published uh, Thursday in the current biology um, uses the California two-spot octopus as a model to explain the physiology of this strange behavior. Um, and uh, was the, that study was written by Yan Wang. Mm-hmm. an assistant professor of psychology and biology at the University of Washington. Okay, so the mother mates, produces eggs, handles them with care. She takes each egg one by one, strings them into long strands, cements them to the wall of her den, stays there blowing water over the eggs to keep them oxygenated, and fiercely protecting them from predators. But then she stops eating, starts spending time away from the eggs, and uh, she loses color, muscle tone, her eyes become damaged, some of them start to injure themselves, uh, rubbing themselves against the gravel of the seafloor, scarring their skin, um, some of them even eat their own arms. Yeah. Um, so they essentially commit suicide mm. after the birth of the babies. Now, they're not quite sure why this happens. How about they have no it, idea what, why this no, happens? No, it may have something to do with these optic glands that are, you know, between the eyes. Mm-hmm. It has nothing to do with the eyes, mm-hmm. with vision, Okay. Um, but, uh, they, um, uh, something about chemical pathways produced by the glands. Um, one pathway, 
and generates various things that support reproduction. But another one actually produces bile acid that promote the absorption of dietary fats. And then another one is 7-DHC, which is generated in vertebrates as well. In humans, it has various functions, including production of cholesterol and vitamin D, but elevated levels of 7-DHC are toxic, okay? Um, and are linked with disorders that cause severe intellectual, developmental, behavioral problems. So, um, you know, you know, Wang and her colleagues are thinking maybe this yeah. is uh, the ticket for understanding what triggers this behavior in the mother octopi. All right. Anyway, it's very sad. Yeah, it's very um, sad. We I'm... generally view human death as a failure yeah. of organs, organ systems, or function. Mm -hmm. But in an octopus, says Dr. Wang, the system is supposed to be doing this. So I think there's still a question of what, why? Yes. It's, yes. A, it's an enormous question of why. I don't think we have any idea why, based on listening to that. So I don't know. No. I don't know. But they're trying to you know, find a path to understanding it. Yeah. But it's weird that you would be... Totally weird. That an animal would be right. you know, built to self-destruct. Yeah, at least to me. I'm sure we'll get... Uh, somebody will respond and tell us. I didn't us. know that do all octopus, uh, octopi only live a year? I, I, my knowledge of octopus is limited. Yeah, I only know what I read in the Rainbow Fish book that I read to Hazi. Yeah. Where the Rainbow Fish goes to ask the wise old octopus for information. <laughs> wise old octopus, he could be like nine months old, you yeah. know? Could be that the person doing that book wasn't aware of the limited lifespan of uh, octopi. All right, so just quickly, uh, there's an odd article about A.B.'s Irish Rose, a play uh, we're all vaguely familiar with, or at least I we're am. not all vaguely. If no one's familiar with I this, would. Daniel. It's mentioned it's in from the 1920s. They met, it's, it comes up in Rogers, Hart, in, in Rogers and Hart's lyrics. Yeah, no one's it comes even up heard. Most Stephen people, Sondheim. Most people we know haven't even heard of Rogers and okay. Hart. Okay, fine. All right. All right. Just, uh, all right. you know. I'm we vaguely aware We don't need to it. introduce it like this. My point is. You're vaguely aware it of it. It was a extremely because popular. Because you've memorized the lyrics to Follies, <laughs> uh, right? My point is it, it, it was... An extremely popular play. It ran for 2,300 performances. It had the record on Broadway before it was broken by Life with Father. Um, it was on for five years. Yeah. It was amazing. And every nobody thought it was any good. Well, nobody sophisticated thought it was any good. How's yeah, that? critical acclaim was nil. Right. Okay. Yes, and, so it's a story, just so we're clear. It's a story about intermarriage. It's a story about a Jewish World War One veteran and his Irish Catholic bride. And... Uh, there are the predictable uh, conflicts uh, uh, that uh, come up from that between the two families and whatever. So that's this whole story. And uh, it was written by a woman. Yes, it was written by. Is a this woman. the one that was written like Anne three Nichols. days or something? Yeah, she wrote in three days, and uh, she became a zillionaire as a result. But it was it it inspired uh, a lot of pushback from uh, sophisticated spirits such as those that sat at the Algonquin Roundtable, in particular. Uh, Robert Benchley, who was what ran so long, got a chance to make various observations. They pick a few of them out that appeared in Time magazine. He called the play something awful, 
all right if you never went beyond the fourth grade. The Comic Spirit of 1876, and my favorite, according to Benchley, people laugh at this every night, which explains why our democracy can never be a success. I mean, Benchley was so down in the play that he ran a um, contest uh, to see who would come up with the best line about the play uh, in the magazine. And the winner was one Arthur Marks, otherwise known as Harpo, who described the play as no worse than a bad cold. Um, So a lot of people didn't like it. But what's interesting is the people... I liked it. You mentioned that. People voted with their feet. I mean, you were talking it, about the painting at the beginning. Yeah, same yeah, idea. So yeah. it's a popular something support. appeals to the people. Right. Who are we to say? Right. Whether it's great art. Yes. <laughs> and Alexander Walcott, also of the Galcon Ron Table, said, "Look, Abish Irish Rhodes has not only pleased its public; it has created its public. In other words, it attracted people to Broadway who would never have gone to Broadway and wouldn't have gone to Broadway, but they marketed it in the Irish and Jewish neighborhoods, and those folks came to the play." Probably the only time they went to the theater, but they came to see this. So, you know, it but was a phenomenon. Uh, also a quote about why it, this is why democracy will never work? I, I think I just read that one. I think I just, yes, I did. Okay, sorry. <laughs> read it again. Yeah, he, he, he said, uh, what did he say? He said, people laugh at every night, which explains why a democracy can never be a success. Yeah. All right, so... so so that's just, you know, the opposite of what I'm saying. Right? No, it's not. Sure it is, because I, I, I'm i saying, you know, it, 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 doesn't, it doesn't necessarily give anything um, artistic value because of popularity, all right? Well, no, because I don't interpret it that way. What I think that line really means, I don't think he cares that uh, people are going to this and they're going to a theater piece that he doesn't like or that this, uh, this playwright is going to be a millionaire. He must be mystified. He's mystified, but more the point yeah. is when he's talking about democracy, he's talking about government and how people, what candidate are people going to vote for. And what he's saying is, yes, this may have a large popular appeal, but the fact that it has a large popular appeal tells you that the populace who goes to the polls and votes on more serious issues and more weighty matters is really not well equipped to do those kind of votes. In an informed way. That's what I'm exactly saying. Well, I didn't read it that way. But that's not anti... Well, that has nothing to do with art. He's not giving you a sense of what... He's not making a judgment about art. He's really making a judgment about politics. It's a little different. I, I don't think it's just that. I think he's making an assessment of, you know, uh, people's, you know, uh, critical assessments. Whether it's... Uh, about uh, political issues or, you know, what they like. Okay. Yeah, whatever. Yeah, I don't know. But, well... Look, whatever. I mean, it's not the first time. A guy like Robert Bensley would have gone crazy today. Would you see what's popular or what what television that was popular in the 70s, 80s, 90s, whatever? Yeah, I'm sure he would have been, uh, you know, quite uh, aggravated about saying, gee, that's what gets popular support and popular appeal, and that's the kind of thing that's bringing people to the theater when that's trash. I mean, in a sense, that's what he did for a living. Is he, you know, he, he took sort of an attitude about things and, and you know, uh, tried to, uh, you know, support what he thought was artistically sound. Okay. All right, so uh, just quickly a little, um, there's an article in uh, the Wall Street Journal under the Masterpiece section about a beautiful, beautiful still life painted by Juan Sanchez Cotan in 1602, all right? I know 
people can't see it yeah. when I'm talking about it. Yeah. But you should Google still life with quince, cabbage, melon, and cucumber by Cotan. C-O-T-A-N. 1602. You look okay. at it. The simplicity of it just okay. blows my mind All right. when you think of uh, painting it from the 17th century. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's just uh, tremendously, I, I, I don't know, just rings my chimes. All right. Uh, and uh, it's, it's, you know, it's not the big, lush, still lives that we see in, you know, uh, French or Dutch, you know, painting. Yeah. Uh, it's stark. It's got this dark background. Everything's highlighted. Is he, you know... You know, Caravaggio is over in Italy, you know, uh, doing his tenebrism thing, you mm-hmm. know, the stark contrast. But this is just a few years, you know, he's becoming, uh, he's doing his paintings in the 1590s, you know, um, and this is just 1602 over in Spain. And so it gives me the feeling that uh, there was much more knowledge and connection. But to me, these are the, this is one of the paintings I would like, I would show to students who think they know what old masterpieces look like. And again, the simplicity of it, the modernity of it. um, Well, it looks like a photograph. It it does. It does. Um, It's hyper, you know, hyper realistic. uh, But it also, um, you know, there's no explanation for exactly what it's meant, what story it's meant to tell. (laughs) He he was a... um, Painter who abandons his studio in 1603 to join a monastery as a lay painter worker. Mm-hmm. Gives away, sells all his uh, belongings, mm-hmm. pretty much. Um, but uh, then this painting, actually, uh, this painting ends up in New Jersey. Mm-hmm. Ends up in the estate of Joseph Bonaparte. Remember Joseph Bonaparte? Uh uh, ends up in uh, New Jersey. That's right, yeah. Okay, moves to Bordentown um, uh, after, uh, well, after his whole snafus in Spain. Um, <laughs> and then uh, and then it's, in, then it's in the Philadelphia Academy of Fine Arts and gets sold out to uh, um, California. Uh, so it really, the um, Cotan's um, still life, yeah. Quince, cabbage, cucumber, and melon. Um, and uh, another um, book that was uh, reviewed in the Wall Street Journal was uh, What the Ermine Saw by Eden Collinsworth. And it's the story of uh, Lady with an Ermine by Leonardo da Vinci. And everybody knows Mona Lisa. This is arguably a much better portrait and more interesting. It's of a young woman who was Ludovico Sforza's mistress. It's a, she's being painted when she's 17 years old. Mm-hmm. And uh, this is uh, just before Ludovico marries uh, Beatrice d'Este, Beatrice d'Este. Um, and uh, for a while... Um, His mistress still lives in the house, and then she gets booted out. She becomes pregnant. Not good form, apparently, in that day and age. But uh, the book seems marginally interesting, uh, but it really kind of 
There's a lot of speculation, apparently, on the part of the author as to what all these people were thinking mm-hmm. in uh, the late 15th century. Mm-hmm. So, And the sad thing is, uh, uh, I don't think Beatrice gets uh, enough uh, um, respect in this book. She was a, a fascinating woman, Beatrice d'Este, wife of Ludovico Sforza, who... Uh, was promised to her for a long time, and he kept backing out of the marriage. Backing out. Backing out. Apparently he was too charmed by this other woman. I don't know. All right. Not a story I was terribly up on, but uh, okay. Uh, They finally get married in a double wedding. Good. Yeah. Glad to hear it. I think think we're... might have been a shotgun situation, <coughs> cannonball well, situation, or something like that. I don't know. I wouldn't speculate. Her sister was the famous Isabella Deste. When you say famous, uh... you know, I was looking for her studiolo in Mantua, in Ferrara. Oh, okay. Um, Mantua. Can we get back to horse racing just for a second <laughs> to close this out? So I think what I said on the podcast, I certainly said to you after uh, Rich Strike won the Kentucky Derby. Was that the horse? Prom- you did. You gave a long speech to uh, me and my friend Cindy. That's right. That about horse, the future of the Triple Crown. I said that horse should not run in the Preakness, and his best bet would run in the Belmont. But they may be stuck because the winner of the Derby is expected to run in the Preakness. And there was an article uh, in just a few days ago, headline: "Surprise winner of Kentucky Derby will not run in the Preakness because." Because he's this not... horse is a closer, right. ooh, ooh. and the Preakness is too short for serious closing. That's true. It's okay. A, it's a mile. There you have it. It's a mile and a sixteenth, and the uh, Belmont is uh, a mile and a half. The, the Preakness, uh, two other things. The Preakness is a very tight turns. you got to be a nimble horse. And the other thing is that uh, it's tough to put a horse into another race just two weeks later. This yeah. uh, horse is not that experienced. Benefit from the five weeks between the Derby and the Belmont. And he's thinking, what can I do? What can I do with a mile and a sixteenth? That's not <coughs> enough for me. Excuse me, yeah. But, I don't do that. And yet, all the time, they force the derby winner to run. So it's, uh, I give them credit for not running. You know, uh, you know, going back to the thing about AB's Irish shows, and I'm thinking about it, I mean, the guys from the Algonquin Round Temple are kind of extremes. I mean, they're looking to sort of make a joke out of things and give a hard time to what they view as populist entertainment. I wonder what they said about Life with Father. I mean, I can't imagine that they would have said, well, that's a good play. I'm sure they didn't take that seriously either, wouldn't you think? Yeah. Yeah. That's not No, I think it's kind of fun. That Apparently, uh, for Benchley, it was a running gag. He had like an insult a week or something. Oh, is that right? About uh, the play. Yeah. Oh, okay. So, uh, whatever. But, you know. But then once in a while, you go to something, you go to a movie, you know, that's a big hit, and you're sitting there and saying, I don't get it. Right. I don't get it. Right. What does the rest of the world see? Yeah, so that happens. And sometimes, I understand it. But sometimes you go to it and you love it. That's what makes popular culture uh, interesting. Yeah, but still, it makes uh, it also makes uh, you know um, popular opinion, the power of popular opinion, a little scary. Yeah, well, you got to take it with a grain of salt. Okay, um, we'll continue this conversation offline. So uh, well, until next week. Uh, this is Dan Abuhoff. And Tamsin Granger with Dan... Tamsin and Dan, Tamsin and read, Dan the paper. read the paper. You'll get it eventually. You know, I'm just... I'm a giver. You know, I'm always wanting you to have top billing, and it just spills out there. All right? Finally. See you next week.